We have two guest speakers today. And you know how everyone's special? Well, everyone's special, but um, one, of, one of the most unique and special people that I know and have gotten to know is a lady named Lauren Kibler. And uh, Lauren is unique because she has, um, she's not afraid to be truthful. And she's not afraid to find people that everybody else would think is a little weird and be friends with them. So Lauren has taught me just a ton about what it means to be human, and she is going to share part of her testimony in just a minute. And then secondly, uh, someone who inspired, was one of the real inspirational people in this whole idea of this series that we're doing called Playlist on the Psalms is Dr. David Howard. Uh, Dr. David Howard was not only my professor when I went through the Psalms at Bethel Seminary class, but this was a man who week after week and month after month uh, and year after year of teaching students has not lost his love for God and his love for God's word in any of the years he's taught. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things. The second thing, though, is that um, every year, while he gets, I'm sure, a large salary from Bethel Seminary, uh, he goes across the world and teaches uh, pastors of house churches who have very little training in China and Malaysia, and, and often times where he has to say that he's a tourist, not a teacher, because of the persecution. And he does this because his love for seeing God's word shared and expanded all over the globe. So those are just a few of the things that we have today, which is what I'm really excited about. And because of um, the psalm that we're looking at, this really almost dark and depressing psalm, we said, you know, we said we weren't going to have kids ministry today, but we really think that uh, our children would benefit from not the darkest psalm on the planet. So at this time, we're going to dismiss pre-K through grade five completed, and you guys can go up, and Lauren is going to come up and share with us. So Lauren, come on up. Hi. Um, as Rob said, I'm Lauren. Uh, if you've breathed in this general vicinity, you've probably met my mother, Jean. Um, so Rob asked me to come in and talk and give kind of a tangible illustration of Psalm 88. I'm 20 years old, and I had my first anxiety attacks and incidents of self-harm when I was four. By the age of 13, I was suffering from pretty severe depression. I tell you this to give you an idea of the shadow that was looming over me for most of my life. But there's a distinction between a looming shadow and fully consuming darkness, which I did not experience until about three years ago. It was at that time that I met a boy who was affectionately nicknamed Brandy. He was your picture-perfect Hollywood bad boy, complete with the black clothes and tortured soul. I was intrigued and got to know him and found a very angry and hostile young man, and I believed that God wanted me to save him. So I fell in love. Over the next year of my life, he dug me into a hole of both physical and emotional abuse. He convinced me to push all of my friends away and turn from everyone who cared about me. By the time I graduated from high school, my body was riddled with cuts and scars. I spent most of my time in bed staring at the wall, and I was convinced that I was completely worthless. The summer before I started college, I attempted suicide. I could end this now and give you a hallmark ending in which I hit rock bottom and my family and friends rally around me and I realize how much I had to live for, but that's not actually how it works. 
Instead, I was just angry. To say that I was angry at God would be an understatement. I was living in Psalm 88. I was spending night after night screaming at and pleading with God, but that is where it's really important to emphasize that I was screaming at and pleading with God. He was still there, no matter how angry I was. I set on a course of trial and error treatment, combining therapy and medications that would work and then stop. So I'd try again and again and again. I was taking steps forward and stumbling, but every time I stumbled, I was picked back up again. I started to look back and I had to realize that the force that I thought was God was not. God did not lay the abuse upon me. He has a plan, but he is not cruel or evil. I then started to notice the forces that were God. My best friend who refused to be pushed away no matter how hard I tried. My family who was there for me and wouldn't let me go as I started to lose myself. Friends who, by all medical predictions, were doomed becoming healed. Perfect timing of calls and emails and texts and people visiting me. God had given me all of these ways out, all of these tools. He'd offered me the help. I just needed to build a ladder. In realizing this, I started to trust God again. I started moving forward. And no matter how hard I stumbled, I was picked back up again. Even when the meds would stop and I would be right back where I started, even when it took me weeks to figure out what I needed again, I could hold on because I knew that God was there and he hadn't abandoned me. He provided me with connections to friends, some new and some were old friends, willing to welcome me back with welcome arms. And a relationship with my family, which is something I hadn't had very strongly, and the ability to talk to them about our faiths and our struggles and our lives. A boyfriend who understands the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder and is willing to and knows how to help. He gave me light again. I'm not finished. The story isn't over. I haven't found a life that's filled with sunshine and daisies, but I've found one that has thunderstorms followed by rainbows and sunny days and no more endless nights. God has shown me his presence, and no matter how hard I fall and no matter how dark it gets, I always know that he is still here with me. Thank you. privilege to be with you this morning, and uh, especially have Rob invite me to come. Enjoyed having Rob in class uh, several times, I guess, and uh, it's, it's great to be here and see your church and see how it's growing and new milestone with the, with the denomination. I want to talk this morning about uh, praising God in the bad times. It's easy to praise God in the good times when things are going well, and there's lots of psalms. Um, I've been privileged to study and teach the psalms for many years now, and there's plenty of psalms for praising God in the good times. But there's also uh, the Bible 
also acknowledges and realizes and understands. God certainly understands that there are bad times in life, and there are many Psalms that give us guidance about doing that as well. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'd ask you to open to Psalm 88. If you don't, in a few minutes, uh, it'll be up on the screen, so you can follow along there as well. I want to begin, though, by telling you a story about a, a real-life couple. Their names were Joe, uh, Joe and Mary Lou Bailey, and God tested this family in ways beyond what I think I could ever begin to endure. Joe was in the Lord's work, working in a Christian organization with students and writing for Christian magazines. He was pretty well known back in the 50s and 60s in Christian circles. They had a happy family. They had three sons and a daughter. And then tragedy struck. One of their young sons developed leukemia. And at the age of five, he died. As Joe tells it in a book that he wrote afterwards, and the book was called uh, The View from a Hearse. And uh, as Joe tells about it in this book, he, Danny, their son, died in his own bed with his mother and father next to him, comforting him, loving him, telling him about Jesus' love in heaven. The family had always spoken about those things, and Danny had responded with the simple faith of a child and what his parents said. But this day... Danny didn't want to go to heaven. He wanted to stay. He wanted to be with his mom and dad and his brothers and sister in his own home. He did not want to leave everything that he knew. But he did. He did leave. He died that day. Then God gave the Baileys the hope of new life again. They were expecting another baby and they rejoiced. But when the day came, the baby was born with a severe handicap. They named him John, but on the second day of his life, he died as well. The Baileys had lost two children. It's been said that the most severe trauma that a parent can suffer is to undergo the death of a child. Statistics show that divorce rates skyrocket in families where a child dies when neither parent can reach out to the other beyond his or her own grief. And yet, the Baileys had lost two children. But God was not finished with them yet. A few short years later, their 18-year-old son, Joe, had a freak sledding accident. Joe was a hemophiliac, and he bled to death on Christmas Day. Seven years, three sons, three deaths. Joseph Bailey wrote a poem after the end of death of his son, Joe, and here's part of it. He said, Let me alone, Lord. You've taken from me what I give your world. I cannot see such waste that you should take what poor men need. You have a heaven full of treasure. Could you not wait to exercise your claim on this? Oh, spare me, Lord, forgive, that I may see beyond this world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan, or seeing not, that I may trust you, you spoiler of my treasure. Have mercy, Lord, here is my quit claim. Our psalm for today is a psalm for the bad times, for people in spots like the Baileys found themselves in. There are plenty of psalms that teach us how to praise God in the good times, and uh, indeed that's what many people think of when they think of the psalms, which is praising. But it's interesting to note that there are just as many psalms that teach us how to relate to God in the bad times as in the good times. As a matter of fact, there are more uh, that speak about the hard times. The book of Psalms does not hide from the difficult issues of life. And the psalms for the bad times 
are called laments. Roughly half this altar is made up of them. And the typical pattern is that the psalmist addresses God. He tells God of his overwhelming troubles. He asks God to hear his prayer. And then he thanks God for hearing and answering his prayer, for either in actuality or anticipating that's going to happen. And uh, so Psalm 88 is a lament, and it fits the lament pattern somewhat, but it's unique in the Psalter. There's no other song like it because it paints such a bleak picture. It has no praise at the end. It just ends. It ends on a very depressing note. It ends with a horrible groan. One commentator has called it the darkest corner of the Psalter. So let's read the psalm. I would like to read it for you, and you can follow along. On the screen here, it begins, O Lord, the God of my salvation, by day I have cried out, by night too, before you. My prayer comes before you, incline your ear to my ringing cry. For my soul is more than full of troubles, and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I have been reckoned with those who go down to the pit. I have been like a strong man without any strength. One released from the dead, like defiled bodies lying in the grave, whom you remembered no more. Indeed, they are cut off from your care. You have placed me into the lowest parts of the pit, into the deepest place, darkest places, into the depths. Your wrath has rested heavily upon me, and you have afflicted me all of your with all your breakers. You have distanced those who know me from me. You have made me abominations to them. I am shut in and I cannot get out. My eye has grown dim because of my trouble. I've called out to you, O Lord, and all the day, all the day, I have spread out my palms unto you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Or do the shades rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love recounted in the grave? Your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But as for me, unto you, O Lord, I have cried out. And in the morning my prayer approaches you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? How afflicted have I been and dying since my youth? I've borne your terrors. I'm, I'm overcome. Over me have passed your burning angers. Your dread assaults have destroyed me. They've, they've swirled around like waters over me all the day. They've encircled me completely. You have removed far from me my loved one and my friend, namely, those who know me. Oh, darkness. So let's think about the psalm. It begins in verses 1 and 2 with a cry of distress. We should notice two things here. First, it's addressed to the Lord, the God of my salvation, or the God who saves me. Despite the fact that the psalmist is in a position where he feels overwhelmed by life and even by God, he still acknowledges that this is his God, the God of his salvation. Second thing we should notice at the beginning of verse 2, that the psalm is a prayer. Despite the overwhelmingly despairing note in the psalm, it's still a prayer and it's still addressed to God. So both these points show us that the psalmist is not an atheist. He still prays to God, to his God, but the psalmist quickly moves on because he's not really interested in affirming this God at this time, but rather in pouring out his troubles before him and even in questioning him. So in verses 3 to 5, we have the first recital of his troubles, and it's a pretty, pretty impressive list. 
The section is permeated with images of death. Sheol, the pit, the grave, the dead, the slain, defiled bodies. Psalmist hasn't died, but he uses these images to illustrate how serious his troubles are. It's an overwhelming piece of picture of darkness and despair that's painted here. You know, in verses 6 to 9, he talks about God's afflictions. And he points to God as the source of his problems. God is the one who's brought him down to the very depths, verse 6. Here again, we have the darkest images imaginable. He's brought him down to the lowest pit, the dark places, the depths. The psalmist feels the weight of God's wrath of his angry breakers crashing over him in verse 7. And perhaps worst of all, in verse 8, God has removed his friends from him. There's nobody he can turn to. He's utterly alone in life. Now we ourselves know from experience that support of family, friends, church people is crucial in helping us through the crises of life. And it's moving to hear the testimony this morning, even precisely those things. But this psalmist feels like he has none of those. And he states that even more forcefully at the end of the psalm in verse 18. He feels overwhelmed and trapped, can't get out. Verse 9, he can't see, his eye, his eye is dim with grief, he calls out to God in a seemingly futile attempt to get him to listen. So in verses 10 to 12, there's a series of questions that the psalmist has for God. And as a result of all this, he turns to the only one he can turn to, and that's to God himself. And there's six questions here, and they're all variations on one theme. And the theme is that the dead do not praise God. Each question in these verses mentions the realm of the dead along with something about God's goodness. And there's two assumptions in these verses. The first is that the psalmist feels troubled even by the threat of death, whether it's literal or maybe metaphorical. But a second assumption, more importantly, is that the psalmist equates praising God, testifying to his goodness, and he mentions things like his steadfast love, his his faithfulness, his righteousness, wonderful works. He equates all of that with life. One commentator has noted that for the psalmist, the relationship between praising and not praising was that the same as that between living and not living. If you were alive, that's what you did. You praised God. The thoughts express a little more clarity in a passage from Psalm 30, which is another lament. And in verse 9 in that psalm, it says, What gain is there in my destruction? What gain is there in, going, in my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your handiwork? In this passage, we see that the psalmist assumes that while he's alive, he's going to praise God. And so too in Psalm 88. That's the assumption behind those questions. The psalmist's request for deliverance is not self-centered or self-serving, some sort of instinctual primal scream that displays the survival instinct of the species. No, it's an anguish and torment request. And yet it's a reasoned one that he be spared. And the reason for that is so that he can praise and glorify God comes out of an experience in the past where there has been a better relationship with God. It's a request born out of faith in God as the one who could deliver him and as the one whom the psalmist wants to praise, even though he can't bring himself to do it right now. Finally, in the last section of the psalm, verses 13 to 18, the psalmist concludes by giving another desperate litany of his troubles, crying out to God and describing in more detail the ways in which God's afflicting him. The psalmist uses almost every image imaginable to get his point across. He speaks in verses 14 and 15 of God rejecting him, of his being afflicted, even dying from the days of his youth. Of God's terrors, his burning anger, his dreaded assaults in verses 15 and 16. 
They're passing and swirling over him in 16 and 17. And the psalmist ends in verse 18 on a terribly depressing note. And that is that God has taken away his closest support and all he has left is darkness. Now, English translations differ on how exactly to translate the last verse of the psalm. For example, one version reads, You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. The New International Version reads, You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. I would suggest something a little similar but a little different, and I, and I would note that the text ends with a single word, darkness, that can easily, be, easily and legitimately be seen as a final gasp or moan, kind of final cry of desperation as follows. You have removed far from me the one who loves me and the one who is my friend, namely those who know me. And the psalm then ends with this one single stark anguish word, a despairing cry, O oh, darkness. If you know the story of Joseph Conrad's novel, The Heart of Darkness, which is about a slave trader in the 19th century in Africa, a horrible, horrible man, as he faced death and looked back over a totally corrupt life that he lived, he uttered his final despairing words, the horror, the horror. Uh, that, mo- that story was taken and adapted into a movie called Apocalypse Now about 30 years ago, and it's the same story, and you see the Marvin Brando dying at the end in the same, same way. Darkness is all the psalmist can see as he looks out around him. There's nothing left for him, it seems. Only darkness. So, what can we learn from a psalm like this? Is there anything to learn from such a sad and bleak text? I'll just confess to you, the first time I began, became aware of the psalm was my first year of teaching at Bethel Seminary 30 years ago now. And when I came across it and realized what a dark and bleak psalm it was, I had no idea how to deal with this psalm. And I was, so I did, I was, did a very smart thing. Whenever I taught the psalms, I never, never mentioned it. I hoped that no student would ask me any questions about the psalm. And I was successful. Nobody did for 10 years. And then I decided that the Lord wanted me to dive in and try to figure something out. So here's, Here's the things that I think we can learn from this psalm. I think there's at least a couple things. One, it teaches that even in the midst of the worst circumstances, it's still possible to talk to God. It's still possible to have a relationship with Him. Remember, for one thing, the psalmist is praying here. Verse 2, verse 13. He's not praying very happy thoughts, but he's still praying. He's still talking to God. In spite of his perception that God has caused his troubles, he believes that God is close enough to hear him. Remember also that the psalmist still affirms his relationship with God. He calls him the God of my salvation. Despite the strain and the distance, the psalmist still acknowledges God. And finally, remember that the psalmist assumes that praise is the normal mode of life. And he wants to return to that mode in verses 10 to 12. He mentions God's attributes, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, wonderful works. So even the saddest of psalms still affirms God. But, I think we would be dishonest to the text if we were to say that that's the full message or even the major message of the psalm. The glimpses into the praise of God that we find in this psalm are only that. Fleeting glimpses. What the psalm gives us a much clearer picture of is lament, distress, depression, darkness, despair. 
Those are the images that are powerful and clear and unrelenting in this psalm. It paints a dark picture over and over again, and it ends on that dark note. So a second thing I think we can learn from the psalm is that it is part of a believer's experience in life to feel depressed. And even to feel so depressed as to have nothing good to say to God. The psalmist can barely gasp a few hints about his positive feelings toward God because his true feelings are overwhelmingly negative. In the mid-1980s, my wife and I were trying, going through some very dark times. We were wanting to start a family, but it was not happening. We applied to an adoption agency, but things seemed to move at a snail's pace. We prayed consistently about this, but it didn't seem as if God was answering it. Well, as it turned out, he did marvelously answer our prayer, giving us the two daughters that we have today by adoption, and we wouldn't trade them for the world. Uh, in the teenage years, we might have entertained an offer, but nobody was offering, so we called the agency, they wouldn't take them back. They're more precious than life itself. They're both married now, and one has given us a grandchild about three months ago. But the depth of despair in the time of waiting was very, very real. It was indeed a dark time for us, especially for my wife, who comes from a big farm family of nine children. All we wanted was one. She felt overwhelmed by God, even angry with Him. She tells me one time when we were going to have a time of prayer together, and I asked her if she wanted to pray. We would typically, after dinner, have a devotional time where we read the Bible or read a Christian book of some type. We'd pray. And I usually said, do you want to pray? And then I'll pray. She was at a point that night when she felt that she had nothing left to say to God. That she was spiritually and emotionally drained. She felt in some ways the way this author, Psalm 88, felt. And so she said no. She didn't want to pray. First time in our marriage. Six years at that point. Now I've done a lot of things wrong in our marriage over the years before and since. But one thing I did right was on that day, and I know it's right because she told me it was, and she's given me permission to share the story. My response was quick and short, but it was obviously the right one for the moment because I said, okay, I'll pray. And she says she felt a huge release and a measure of understanding that when she could not suffer, she, she could not summon the energy to pray, some way that was okay. It was okay with me because I knew that she had not abandoned her faith. She and I had many questions, but she was not turning her back on God. She just couldn't face him directly at that time. She certainly couldn't mount the great praises of God that are present so much of the rest of this altar. She would not have felt comfortable reading some of those great praise psalms. She would have felt much better reading Psalm 88. But that was the time I was still ignoring Psalm 88. But she sat through our prayer time together by her very presence, silently affirming her relationship with God, even though at that time she could barely understand this God, this God who seemed to be blocking us from what we so earnestly desired. There's much to be said. There's much to be said for silence and pain. Sometimes we hear God more clearly in our pain. C.S. Lewis said in a great book called The Problem of Pain, 
He said, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And God himself helps us in our weakest hours. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.26, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. But, we ask, what right does God have to allow or to inflict such pain, such distress, as, as was experienced by the Bailey family, or by the psalmist of Psalm 88, or by the author of the, of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you know the story behind that. Sounds like a psalm that, sounds like a hymn that a person just knows only the good things in life. But it is written by a man after the death of his four daughters on a shipwreck back in the 1880s. And his wife and his four daughters are going across to England on a ship. Ship sank. His wife survived. Daughters did not. <clears throat> she cabled back that they had all died. On the next ship he took across the, the, the sea. As he was crossing the place where that first ship had sunk, he wrote this hymn. What right does God have to allow or inflict the kind of pain these people have experienced? What does he know of pain? The answer is, of course, that he does. He subjected himself to it on our behalf. He gave his own son, his only son, to be tortured and killed. As a father, God must have suffered unspeakable pain, at least in some level. And God the Son obviously suffered. He knows what our pain is like. And yet God also knows our limitations. Psalm 103, verse 14 says, He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We may, we may very well have times in which we cannot bring our lips even to utter a word to God. Certainly not a word of praise. The words get stuck. They won't, they won't come out. And yet, the very fact that Psalm 88 is in the Bible, that it wasn't censored and deleted out as some sacrilegious aberration from what should be the correct way, quote-unquote, of relating to God, that very fact tells us that it's okay to be silent, it's okay to question God severely in our distresses. What are your distresses today? All of us have some. The nice thing about the Psalms is, this, is that they're so general, we can plug in our own individual troubles into the appropriate spots where David or the other psalmists talking about their troubles, and we can pray right along with the psalmists. Have you ever felt like Joseph Bailey did at the death of his son? Then pray a prayer like he did. Oh, spare me, Lord, forgive, that I may see beyond this world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan, or seeing not, that I may trust you. Pray a prayer like Psalm 88. Ask God to help you trust Him, even when you can't see the big picture. 
Don't feel guilty that you can't pray the great praises found elsewhere in this altar. Those are for another time, and they'll come in time. Just don't let go of God completely. Remember the words of the writer of It Is Well With My Soul. Remember, too, the mature faith of Daniel's friends. Remember when they were thrown to the deaths in the fiery furnace if they did not bow down to the Babylonian king's statue? And here's what they said. They said this to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if he does not. That's the nature of the praise that we're to offer up to God in our weakest hours. God doesn't require us to sing that idiotic song that Bobby McFerrin recorded years ago. Don't worry, be happy. Great song, beautiful musically, but uh, terrible theology. God doesn't require us to sing, you don't worry, be happy. He only wants us not to abandon Him. He wants us to cling to Him, the God of our salvation, so that in due time, when we can, we may again praise Him. Amen.